Today, I'm speaking with Ruby Warrington. With over 20 years of experience as a lifestyle journalist and editor, Ruby is known as an astute culture commentator and true thought leader. I first came across her work when she created the term Sober Curious in 2018, which actually led to my own sobriety journey. But today, I'm speaking with her about an entirely different topic, which is the subject of her latest book, Women Without Kids. It's an anthropological dig into a stubbornly taboo topic that I have been grappling with lately. So Ruby, welcome to Morning Person Newsletter. Leslie, thank you so much for having me. I think I think the work you're doing is great too. <laughs> I mean, I truly cannot wait to dive into this topic because I'm in my own early 30s. And though I'm currently in the middle of my own separation, which honestly brings this question closer to the surface. Many of my friends are married or in committed relationships and partnerships. So we're constantly talking about this question at this point, should we have kids? Um, Which sounds like the question that sort of led you into writing this book and thinking about this topic so deeply. Yes. Well, it's, it's a question that I was asked and that I asked myself from, I would say my middle twenties onwards, I got married quite young. I got married when I was 27, which actually maybe it's not that young. It seemed young at the time because I was the first person in my friend group to get married actually. And it was even strange to me because I never thought I would get married. It wasn't high on my priorities list. I didn't really aspire to the kind of very traditional white picket fence kind of family life that people are presented with, largely because I didn't grow up in that kind of a family. So it wasn't something that I'd experienced and and felt called to replicate. Um, But yeah, I met I met my partner and fell madly in love and realized I would never not like this person. And so asked him to marry me, which is also (laughs) quite Mm. untraditional, I suppose. But yeah, that was when I first started really getting asked the question, when are you going to have children? I already knew prior to that point that motherhood was not something I aspired to or that I particularly felt aligned with who I am and what I wanted to do with my life. But I didn't necessarily feel like I could confidently claim that as there was so much, it wasn't even that there was so much, it wasn't framed as pressure, but just so much inquiry from other people about Mm -hmm. when I was going to do this. Um, If I expressed that it wasn't something I really considered, had considered, um, that was met with a lot of confusion and a lot of questioning, but why, why don't you want to have kids? And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the majority of my middle 20s through to my late 30s, early 40s even, were spent grappling with that. For me, it was more, why don't I want kids? Why don't I want mm-hmm. kids? And I internalized a lot of that as there must be something wrong with me. I don't want this mm-hmm. thing, which as a woman, a person who was born an assigned female at birth, this is supposedly sort of what I'm here to do. Like, isn't this what women do? Um, And if I don't want to do that, then is there something, you know, even biologically wrong with me? I questioned whether I had a a major hormonal imbalance or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And so actually the impetus to write the book only came in my approaching my middle 40s and looking Mm. ahead to menopause and realizing that actually I had zero regrets about not having children Mm. and that Mm. I had not missed out and that nothing seemed to be missing from my life and that so much of that intense questioning had not necessarily been in vain because I learned a lot about myself in the process but had been um 
based in other people's projections, based in societal expectations and was not actually any reflection of there being anything wrong with what I wanted to do with my life or the way that I was living my life and the choices I was making for myself. So I partly wanted to write the book as a kind of a, a guiding light to younger generations who were engaged in that questioning process and also for people who perhaps were a bit older than me and who had had sort of had to, I don't know, had, had internalized a lot of that same sort of like shame almost around not doing this thing that we're supposed to do, you know? It's so interesting to hear you talk about that origin and that that led you to this book, because I actually came to it from sort of an opposite direction. I had always assumed that I would have kids. I never questioned it. The idea of having kids always felt incredibly real to me. I always assumed specifically that I would have a daughter because I'm my mother's only daughter. And it just felt like this is what's going to happen. And then I had this moment where I got married at 28 in the middle of the pandemic. And shortly after getting married, the conversations around having kids amplified. And I had this almost guttural reaction where I realized I've never questioned if I want to have kids or not. And suddenly I'm realizing that I possibly don't. And, mm. you know, as you said, it's so embedded in society that I started asking myself the same questions. And the first question I asked myself was, as you asked, what's wrong with me? And one of the things that I really like about your book that you write from the get-go is that maybe the question of should we have kids isn't even the proper question to be asking. And maybe a better question to ask is what are all the other potential life paths that I could pursue? Right. And actually this is, you know, I point out that this is only a question that women and, and certainly not all women, but mm -hmm. let's talk about women in the United, a country like the United States. And let's talk specifically about white middle upper class women in the United States. Mm -hmm. This is only a question that women have been able to ask in the past, mm -hmm. like honestly, for about the past 50 years. Of course, there have mm -hmm. been outliers throughout history who have pursued mm -hmm. alternative paths to motherhood. But for the majority of women, motherhood has been a biological imperative. And I'm talking yes. about the last 50 years because I'm talking about, well, 1969 is when we had the pill was introduced and we had mm -hmm. broad, broad, broad access to reliable and effective birth control. 1973, literally 50 years ago this year, is the year mm -hmm. that abortion was legalized. And so we had access to safe and legal abortion in the United States. It was, I think, mm -hmm. 1968 in the United Kingdom. And these these developments coupled with, you know, what the, what the second wave feminist movement ha, have, has done in terms of opening doorways to women having better educational opportunities, better opportunities in terms of career, both of which are in service of women being able to support ourselves financially and not be dependent on a partner for our material mm -hmm. well-being. These are relatively new developments. And so that mm -hmm. question, what are all the different life paths that I could pursue, has only really opened up to a larger percentage of women very recently like within literally within my life my lifetime you know I feel like gen mm -hmm. x women and I'm kind of I'm kind of a a younger gen x like on the not quite a millennial <laughs> mm -hmm. but um it's so it's really my generation of the first generation of women who have been able to actually even ask that um yes. as, as, yes. as the kind of quote unquote norm you know and mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. yes, it is a question that um, we are now asking ourselves. And it's a question that women of younger generations are asking in even greater numbers and ideally with even greater access to these kinds of mm -hmm. supports that mean that we're not confined to and defined by 
our mm. reproductive capacity. So it's a very mm. new development. And I think that's one of the reason we still, there's still so many embedded cultural expectations um, mm. that we're still, we're still engaged very much so in the work of undoing mm. those cultural expectations. Yes. And I'm so glad that you brought up everything that you just did so early in this conversation, because it is truly a privilege to make the decision to not have children. And it's a privilege that we've only been allotted recently. And the reason that I'm even able to consider this in my own life is because I do have access to women's health care. I have access to birth control. I'm able to support myself financially. And it offers me this ability to ask these broader questions because I have this stability and I have the support and I have the medical treatment even though this is not treatment that all women have access to, especially with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is a terrifying world to live in. So, you know, I wanted to sort of address that too, that your book, it is so stunning. And I love that it addresses this choice for women who are grappling with this decision to have children. But how, you know, how do we make sure that this decision to be women without kids is not a privilege for just the lucky few? Exactly. It shouldn't be. That's Mm -hmm. the point, right? We think it is a privilege and people will say, oh, Mm -hmm. you're so privileged. Yes. And part of the work of the feminist movement going forward and the continued work of the feminist movement is to ensure that all women and actually all human beings have this same equal opportunity Mm -hmm. to pursue the lives that we want to pursue for whatever Mm -hmm. our reasons might be, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it just shows, I think, how much work there is still to be done. For a sort of an extreme example, I suppose, I recently watched a documentary on life for women in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. I mean, it's just, and obviously we're nowhere near that in the United Mm -hmm. States and hopefully we'll never be anywhere near that, Mm -hmm. you know, but there are, yes, if we zoom out to look at this as a global issue, which it is, Mm -hmm. there are so many women who have Mm -hmm. literally zero rights when it comes Mm -hmm. to their autonomy physical, Mm -hmm. emotional, mental, financial, and yet who are still very much burdened with Mm -hmm. the reproduction of the species. People who are literally providing the lifeblood of our species survival, who are Mm -hmm. at the same time, absolutely 100% subjugated and have zero rights. This is, it's just Mm -hmm. horrific, actually, when we look at it Mm -hmm. like that. And when we think about why is it a privilege (laughs) to be able to actually self-determine about the outcomes Mm -hmm. of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, one of the, it also just shines a light on how big of a decision this is and not Mm -hmm. something to be taken lightly. You know, having, Mm -hmm. becoming a parent is going to dramatically change the course of your life. And so when people say things like, oh, come on, no one ever feels ready to have children. (laughs) Yes. Just, just take the plunge. You'll love it. Or, um, yes, it's hard, but, you know, the love that you receive is so worth it. These are incredibly minimizing statements Mm -hmm. that actually Mm -hmm. carry huge weight when it comes Mm -hmm. to the um, implications of that decision. You know? Yes, Um, it minimizes the decision. Becoming a single mother, for Mm -hmm. example, makes a woman four times more likely to experience poverty. Her children are going to be four times more likely Mm -hmm. to be growing up in poverty as well. And then Mm -hmm. the not only the physical and mental health outcomes, but the lifetime of outcomes that that are, are experienced by having disadvantaged childhood are just like myriad. And so mm-hmm. as, as you saw in the book, I go really deep into unpacking all of this. 
Yes, you do. And you talk so much about generational trauma and this concept of women just repeating the generational trauma that came before them. And that often it's such a difficult pattern to break. And, you know, I wanted to talk about this discussion of, oh, well, you'll be ready at some point or someday you'll do it or just go ahead and have a kid now. Like, yeah. you know, it. You, you won't regret it. But one of the most fascinating chapters in your book that I loved so much that I went and I listened to your podcast of the same title where you interviewed sociologist Orna Donath, who is researching the very taboo topic of regretting having children, which is something that I think that we don't speak about often enough because there's this idea and this concept that once you decide to have a child, you'll never know a love like that in your entire life. It will all be worth it. But from her research, she's uncovered the fact that many women do regret having children. I was wondering if you could speak to some of what you learned from her in researching your book. Yeah, I mean, her book is fascinating. The book is called Regretting Motherhood. And it's um, it charts she she conducted a study, a fairly small study, I think Mm -hmm. just 23 or 25 women who would openly were were prepared to openly talk to her about the fact that they regretted having children and that could they make mm. that decision again they would choose not to have children and yes it's it's one of the the biggest taboos that there is around motherhood i think mm. because like you said the cultural messaging is this is this is this this will be worthwhile no matter what you know mm. um she describes mm. that you know, the, the message that, oh, you'll regret it if you don't have children. One day you will regret it as a politicized use of emotion, whether mm-hmm. it's kind of whether it's used intentionally or not. That kind of language is designed to manipulate people into continuing to repeat the kind of procreative program as we know it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, her book was just really validating and comforting. She she writes in the book, you know, I, I'm not I'm not right. I've been accused of writing this to justify my own decision not Mm. to have children. And I'm not, I'm just wanting to give both sides of the argument. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. just wanting to show that for some women, this is, this is not going to be true. Like you're more likely to regret having children than to, than not having children. Mm -hmm. Um, But I couldn't help feel a little comforted by, Mm -hmm. by it because that's such a, the thought like 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 I sort of touched on this probably is the biggest decision a person can make mm-hmm. in their life you know mm-hmm. it's one of the only decisions that is irreversible ultimately and that is going to impact every single area of your life and mm-hmm. the thought that you might regret not doing it is powerful you know and so yes. it was comforting to hear from these other women that you know what you might regret it actually mm-hmm. and so I guess for me, I, I've sort of taken that information and just applied that more balanced view to my own feelings about motherhood, my own experience of being motherhood, my experiences of family, my own aspirations for my life, my career, for my relationships, my financial situation, like all of the different things that we weigh when assessing. I love the term parental readiness. That was something mm-hmm. that really came up in my return in my research. You know, when assessing our parental readiness on a material, Mm -hmm. physical, emotional, spiritual, mental level, um, to be able to wait, to be able to come at that from a more balanced perspective of, Mm -hmm. yes, I might regret it. And I might regret this path too. Like this, whichever path we take in life brings with it the risk of regretting not taking the other path. And I think that's just actually very realistic, you know, and can be applied to lots of areas of life, actually. 
Oh, completely. And I loved the reason that I loved, um, especially your inclusion of Orna's research is because I think that this word regret is so deeply emotionally charged. Mm -hmm. And I even had a conversation over the holidays with my uncle, who I'm very close with, but he was talking about how so many of his friends who didn't have kids regret not having kids. And I have friends who are going through fertility journeys and who, you know, wish that they had tried having children earlier or are so fearful of regretting not having children children. So it's just, I feel like this word regret haunts me whenever I think Mm -hmm. about whether I'll have children or not, which I'm Mm -hmm. largely on the fence about. Um, But it it is this just, it's such a charged feeling of like, will I regret having children? Will I regret not having children? And so I so appreciated this idea. Yeah, I think ultimately, like, there's a whole chapter where I really go deep into the concept of acceptance. I mean, I think ultimately, like living our lives to the fullest, living lives where we feel contented, ultimately where we feel that we are able to be the people that we are here to be, cultivating the ability to accept our circumstances Mm -hmm. and to accept our choices and to have compassion for the person who made that choice and why they made that, the version of us, I mean, who made that choice and why they made that choice. And, Mm. And if there is, and if something feels lacking, then seeking other ways to kind of experience what we might have got from that. I think, yeah, these are, Mm -hmm. this is a really important concept. And so I go Mm -hmm. quite deep into this idea of kind of accepting, accepting who we are, accepting why we are the way we are, accepting our limitations, you know, Mm -hmm. accepting, accepting the parts of our personality or the parts of our kind of physical reality that mean maybe we won't get to do that thing, you know, and sort of Mm -hmm. living, being able to, come to a place where we can live with that and ultimately live with ourselves, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, because no matter what, you can't have this sliding doors experience where you know which path will lead to what, and you can't know which would make you feel more fulfilled or happier. And it's so interesting. One of the first images that you begin your book with is this idea of having older children coming home for the holidays. And I want to sort of touch upon this idea of the spectacle when thinking about having children, because for Mm -hmm. some reason, this image of someday I'll be this mother and my kids will come home for Christmas and, you know, they'll bring their partners and all of their children and it will be so wonderful. Never mind the fact that I don't celebrate Christmas. I have absolutely no idea where my life is headed. Um, You know, I have this image of like a New England house that's covered in snow. I don't live in New England, but I have this idea in my head of, well, I should have children so that I can have this image, this This this, specific experience. Mm. Yes. And so it was so funny to me that, you know, within five pages, you mentioned the exact same fantasy. Fantasy. And it's interesting, even now, I hadn't really thought about this, but I think um, my mother loves Mm -hmm. nothing better than having my Mm -hmm. brother and I at home at the same time. And when I say at home, Mm -hmm. right, because actually my home is in Miami, Florida. My mum lives Mm -hmm. in you know, a little village in, in Waldron, in Suffolk, um, in the mm-hmm. UK, it fills her up so much to have both mm-hmm. of us there to be hearing about our lives and our experiences. Mm-hmm. And like you say, it's a fantasy because when I think about those times, often they're very fraught with bad feelings, sickness, resentments, unspoken things, it's it's never as it's never how it looks in the movies right exactly. i love the fact you use the term the, the spectacle of motherhood like mm-hmm. that's really what it 
feels like. It's a very, very, what we're presented so often in the media, in movies, in books, and、mm -hmm. in anywhere where motherhood is depicted, we're seeing a very two dimensional, filtered version、mm -hmm. of the totality of that experience. And so, yeah, I think it, it, being aware of that. And being able to, when we get swept up in those sort of visions, that spectacle, being able to kind of draw ourselves back out of it and examine it and sort of weigh it and map it against our own experiences. And again, what we know about ourselves, our limitations, our capacities, the things that we enjoy, the things that we are that we are good at, the things that we are not good at, and sort of like weighing it all up, you know. But yeah, my mum.、Mm -hmm. This is the thing. Like my mum aspired to be a mother. She she didn't really have other aspirations for her life. She wanted to be a mother. She wanted to nurture and raise children, and has shared with me that she found she didn't really know who she was until she became a mother. So、mm. it's been very interesting to have those conversations with her and to really have it all out on the table. You know,、mm -hmm. I felt she never pressured me into becoming a mother. Like she never really. Questioned my decision not to,、um, or、mm -hmm. gave any indication that she was unhappy with that decision, or、mm -hmm. that she expected me to give her grandchildren. I'm very grateful that I didn't have that pressure from her.、Mm -hmm. At the same time, I always had a strong sense that she just really didn't understand who I was, and really couldn't、mm -hmm. couldn't fathom the life that I live and the things I want. And and with that, a slight sense of her disapproval or. Yeah, a, a disconnection between us. So that stuff that's all kind of again, I, I mentioned some of this in the book, but it's definitely led some very interesting conversations between、mm -hmm. us about who we are as individuals and why we want the things that we do, and that's、mm -hmm. been very、um, healing for us actually. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because I've been having some、um, really thought-provoking conversations with my mom recently since my husband and I have been separated because I think. She never brought up children for my entire life, and it was always, I think, just assumed that I would have kids. I met my husband when I was nineteen. We were always on this path to have children. I don't think she ever felt like she needed to bring it up. She just assumed that I would probably have kids at thirty, and then all of a sudden, I made this hard pivot and said, "Actually, I don't know if I want any of this." And so now, all of a sudden, we're having a lot of conversations about my decision to have children or not have children, and I think something that sent. To these conversations is this idea of legacy, which is something that I've also been really wrestling with. So I have a half brother who's forty eight, and he also doesn't have children. So you know, this idea of is the family line ending with us feels especially poignant to me now. And you know, I've always kept journals and small mementos that I assumed that I would pass down to a kid, but now I, you know. I feel like, oh, that's not assumed anymore. And so, I was wondering how you've grappled with this idea of legacy, especially given these conversations you've had with your mom. Well, there is a chapter called "An Other Legacy," and it speaks to this very question. Honestly, and I I wasn't really fully aware of this until I started writing about it. I think I've always found some comfort in the sense that this ends with me. You know the the women and specifically the mothers in my lineage have not had a particularly happy time of it. My mother、mm. has loved being a mother, and she's been she's been challenged, not least financially in that role. You know she hasn't been she hasn't、mm -hmm. been supported in that role. 
and conversations that I've had with her about the mothers going back on our on her side of the family, there've just been so many stories about abandonment and mental illness and people being institutionalized and having their children taken away from them and mm. very few stories of that kind of cozy nurturing sort of energy and vibe around motherhood. And then when I think about mm. my paternal grandmother on my dad's side, she was depressed and medicated and I don't ever remember having a real conversation with her there are mm. other women in that family who were excommunicated because they were presumed to be homosexual and I just there's been so much pain you know and mm -hmm. part of me I think just feels like enough enough mm. I don't need to imprint that into another human being that mm. said in terms of legacy and what will I leave behind I mean I suppose being a writer like it's a, it's very cheesy to sort of say, oh, my books are my babies. But I know that the work I've, I'm doing is having an impact on the world and on individuals in ways that I will never see or know and with mm. ripple effects that will exist long after I'm gone. So I suppose I take some comfort in that. Mm -hmm. Not that I really need comfort, though. I don't know. I think there's yeah, I can, under I can understand, like, even when you were describing kind of keeping sort of mementos that you would like to maybe pass on mm -hmm. to a child at some point, there's something very um, lovely about that, you know? Mm -hmm. And at mm -hmm. the same time, there's something quite sentimental about it. And mm -hmm. I suppose the other piece is sort of knowing that, knowing that no one's going to be able to, no one's going to come after me and sort of carry the torch of my existence well, knowing that, then how am I going to really live? Like, how am I going to make mm. my life count? And it doesn't have to mean having books published or, and I talk about this, you know, I list all these incredible women, women without kids who've achieved fantastic things. It doesn't mean winning an Oscar or getting your movie made or having an impact or becoming president or any of those things. But how am I going to make my life count for me first and foremost? So I really mm -hmm. feel like I've lived this life mm -hmm. to the fullest because truly this is the only life I get to live right might the way that I'm living my life have some kind of a positive impact on the generations to come these are really big mm -hmm. important questions to be asking ourselves you know I can't remember where Huge. I read it but there was an an environmentalist who spoke who didn't have children and who spoke about her work as being you know she's like I I really I I think I, I really I think all the time about the the, the world that we're leaving behind for the kids even if they're not our kids, you know? And I think there's something really powerful and important about that message at this particular and specific junction in the human story, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what are we leaving behind? How are we making our lives count? How are we impacting the world? How will our actions today impact on generations in the future? These are huge mm -hmm. questions to be asking. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. And I love also what you talked about in your book about alternative legacies and this idea of generativity and this concept that you just talked about that this idea of deciding whether to have kids and deciding to not have kids really forces you to live your life in the here and now in a different way that you're not constantly, you know, thinking about, I mean, when you have kids, because of having kids, you're living your life in these developmental increments where you're thinking of mm -hmm. the ages that they will be. And it for somebody who is compulsively future-oriented like me, I can see it as this way of becoming even more future-oriented if I'm raising a child to becoming an adult. And, you know, I would love to briefly talk about this idea of how 
you know, how do we live in the here and now when mm-hmm. not having children? And you talk briefly in your book, and I'm just going to touch on it here, but this concept of the void, which is mm-hmm. um, that peop- people often um, seek to fill this sort of feeling of the fact that something is missing with things. So they'll fill it, as you write, with food, drugs, love, work, and sometimes even having a child. But one of the traps there is that when you fill that void with anything, that void can often become deeper and wider. So this is obviously getting sort of high theory, philosophical and psychological, but yes, but I figured that you would be down to, to dig into this topic. Yeah, because you know, sometimes having a child can be a form of very effective distraction from this Mm -hmm. void, but Mm -hmm. how do we face it head on if we don't have children? So I just for the, I I just want to recap so I can join the dots between two things you were just talking about, which connect very Mm -hmm. clear closely. We was talking about legacy and how to really live our lives to the fullest and how Mm -hmm. to, and how much of that involves really this accepting like this moment right now is me living my life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Am I really filling this up? Am I bringing myself fully to this experience right now? My life isn't happening in two weeks time. My w- life isn't happening on the vacation I've got planned six months from now. My life isn't happening when my kids leave college. My life's happening mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. When this void, <laughs> the void, this sense of emptiness, this sense of something's missing, the sense of, mm-hmm. oh, I just, um, yeah, I'm not quite, uh, th- what is it? I don't even know it's actually very hard to be present in our life when the void is there waiting for us. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons we distract ourselves by future tripping. Future tripping is another big distraction, right? It's, it can become addictive, mm-hmm. actually, constantly planning mm-hmm. ahead. Um, we distract ourselves with alcohol, with TV, with shopping, with food, with so many things that sort of take us out of the present moment. And I think that, yeah, one of the reasons we have an issue with being in the present moment is because there's often when we sit here and that everything else is taken away, there's this sense of just emptiness. And I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm this is something I want to research more. Um, but I think that where my research that I have done is kind of taking me is that that void often actually is the emotional self that we haven't been able to fully connect to it's off it's feelings we don't have name a name for because we don't know what our feelings are we don't know what we're feeling at any moment we don't know what our emotional needs are because often they haven't been met met so we've learned to suppress them or squash them or deny their existence so i kind of feel like that void is often a result of insufficient or in, in insufficient caregiving when we were children or like just all, it, it goes pretty, pretty deep. And I think a lot of it actually mm-hmm. comes back down to the feeling of not really having felt, I don't know, fully nurtured and cared for as individuals in our very, very early years. I, I'm, I'm, when I say my research, I worked with one of my book clients on a book about attachment theory. And she talks about how mm-hmm. our nervous system develops in relation to our attachments to our primary caregivers. And that actually, when that has been disrupted, we can have issues in kind of like forming attachments. It gets pretty complex, but those mm-hmm. issues in forming attachments come from the fact that we're not really able, 
we don't really know sort of who we are because we haven't learned to like fully embody ourselves in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I said, yes. it gets pretty deep. I have got, I've got an, I've got an, a, a, a sort of a meme that I created around this that I'm going to share on Instagram at some point, which I might get some kickback on. I don't know. I think it says something like, you know, don't have a child to fill the empty void, void inside, fill the empty void inside and then have a child. Because the thing yes. is, if we're having, if we're bringing, if we're feeling my life is empty, there's something missing from my life. That's something mm-hmm. being a true sense of embodied self, my full mm-hmm. emotional, difficult, messy self. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I'm thinking there's something missing from my life, it's a child. All we're going to do is imprint that same emptiness, that same void into that child. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. I can't remember what your your um, st- current studies are in, but um, yeah, that's. I don't know. It's, it wasn't a, a perfectly succinct answer because it's such an it's such a deep. It's impossible topic, to give us a but, thing um, to ac- answer to this, and I almost didn't want to ask it because for <laughs> me, it's one of the most interesting questions around becoming a parent or not becoming a parent. But it's also impossible to talk about, you know, in such a short period. But yeah. Um, I'm so glad that we were able to, I mean, this is truly skimming the surface. And I think Mm. it also comes full circle, what you were just talking about to um, this question. We should be just treating this question of whether to have children or not have children really seriously, because Mm. I think it acknowledges the incredible work that it takes to raise a human being. And I Mm -hmm. think the people who have decided to be mothers and fathers and parents are doing so much work to do this. And that it's just ultimately what your book is arguing for is that it's not a decision that should be taken lightly. Right. And, exactly. you know, yes. And at this point, I, I sort of want to take it back a little bit because you talk at the very beginning of your book about this idea of the mommy binary, which mm-hmm. is, you know, and we're of course having this conversation largely about women who are child free by choice, but there are, you know, women without children are sort of put into these two extreme camps of, you know, defiantly child-free or, you know, sadly childless because they weren't able to have a child. But you write about this sort of motherhood spectrum that you created that offers a more nuanced approach around this desire and this aptitude to become a mom. Um, Could you share a little bit more about that and why you developed this theory? Yeah. Well, this sort of came directly from my work with Sober Curious, actually. When I was writing Mm. Sober Curious, I was looking at how we have a very binary idea about alcohol, about drinking. We either have problem Mm -hmm. drinkers who are probably like have a, you know, a clinical illness and can never drink again. And we have Mm -hmm. normal drinkers who is kind of everybody else. And it Mm -hmm. seemed to me, actually, when I really started to look at this, that anybody who drinks on a regular basis probably goes full somewhere in between those two kind of poles, those two binary poles. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I was looking at the subject of non-motherhood, it seemed like, cause I was thinking, who is this book for? I'm having this conversation with my agent, with my publisher, who is this book for? Is this book for women who haven't been able to have children because of fertility issues and they're, you know, they're grieving not having been able to have a child or is this a book for women who do not want a child and want to feel empowered in this very unusual or defiant or deviant decision. And I thought, well, 
both, ideally both, because regardless of the reason someone is a woman without kids, she will face a lot of the same stigma, mm. a lot of the same questioning, a lot of the same feelings of otherness, a lot of the same feelings of, is there something wrong with me? The root of that mm. might be different for the child free. Mm. Is there something wrong with me? Oh, I didn't get the memo. I'm a deviant, strange person. For women who've experienced fertility issues, is there something wrong with me? I haven't been able to physically have a child. Mm. But what I realized is there's a growing conversation around people who are childless by circumstance, which takes into account all of the different factors that imp imp impact our parental readiness from mm. whether or not we're, we've found someone to co-parent with, from our financial situation, from our you know, our own sort of family dysfunction that we might be grappling with from other pressures on our time in terms, including sort of caring for aging parents, for example, mm -hmm. all sorts of our geographical location, our cultural upbringing, our aspirations career-wise, our work situation, like so many different factors can influence mm -hmm. our capacity for parenthood. And so mm -hmm. the motherhood spectrum speaks to that. And it also acknowledges that where a person orients on the motherhood spectrum, and I kind of placed the sort of affirmative yes of people who definitely want to have a child and it's really what they're here to do. And absolutely, that's the number one priority in their life to the affirmative no, who, no, thank you very much. I definitely don't want to do that. I'm like, the spectrum kind of incorporates everyone in between mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. acknowledges that depending as our circumstances shift, and as we develop as human beings and evolve, we might fall on different places on that motherhood spectrum at different times in our lives, which mm -hmm. similarly with the kind of alcohol misuse spectrum, you know, it, it's not necessarily, mm -hmm. it's rarely as simple as I have a drinking, I'm an alcoholic and mm -hmm. I can't drink. Even people who identify as alcoholics mm -hmm. will perhaps sometimes be able to recognize that actually I'm somebody who sometimes abuses alcohol. It's just a much mm -hmm. less finite way of viewing mm -hmm. our circumstances. And I think, and I think, well, I, I know, I hope I'm, I'm suggesting that it can be applied to our feelings about becoming mothers, our feelings about being mothers, um, mm -hmm. our feelings about whether or not we, we want to have a child at all. And so, um, so yeah, that's, what I'm introducing with the motherhood spectrum. So mm -hmm. I think that's going to throw up some very interesting conversations. Yes. And I think it's so interesting. And I think as you're speaking, I'm realizing there's really no, um, it's no accident that I'm in this master's to become an addictions counselor. Um, at the same time, I'm sort of grappling with this question of motherhood because even addiction before going into this program, as you said, I thought of it really as this binary of like, oh, you're non-alcoholic unless you literally cannot have a sip of wine without finishing the bottle. And that's simply not the case. Um, you know, and this idea of the motherhood spectrum, it actually reminds me of a quote from the author Elizabeth Gilbert, who is child-free by choice. And she talked about there are three different camps of women there. There are women who absolutely want to be mothers, should be mothers. Their whole lives have been working towards being mothers. There are women who make really fantastic aunts. They're great and they love kids, but maybe shouldn't have kids of their own. And then there are women who have absolutely no interest in children and don't want that in their life at all. And all three are equally valid and wonderful and should be celebrated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not mm -hmm. only equally valid, wonderful, and should be celebrated, but I would argue necessary for societies and for families to really function properly. You know, mm -hmm. we need 
we need more women, particularly in public roles and in roles in high level positions in business and politics, who are not mm. dedicating the majority of their time, energy and resource to the vocation of child rearing. You know, mm -hmm. I think that one of the reasons we live in such a, an imbalanced society is that we have a very heavily masculine weighted kind of what we live in a very masculine world. I mean, we live in a patriarchy, right? Yes. And if we really want to yeah. dismantle the patriarchy, it doesn't necessarily mean replacing all of these kind of masculine ideals and masculine ways of being that are kind of, you know, that shape very much the way that our societies are structured with feminine ones. It just means balancing mm -hmm. it out. And I think that like the, the practicalities of child rearing are such that it's mm -hmm. very, very difficult um, for, I would say, most women to occupy both high level positions. And when I say mm -hmm. high level, I'm not talking about status. I'm talking about influence and impact for women to have those mm -hmm. kinds of positions in the wider society and also be engaged in the role of parenting, at least mm -hmm. for the first sort of 15 to 18 years of their children's lives, which is not mm -hmm. to say, I mean, you know, I think in the, in the, the very beginning of the book, I sort of talk about how anytime I think like that, I kind of just look over here at Wikipedia and there's all these women who've had incredible impact on society and also raise kids, you know? So of course. of course those women exist. Of course they do. But I'm talking about the, these women are outliers actually. Mm -hmm. And it requires mm -hmm. so much, um, additional support for them to be able mm -hmm. to perform both roles um, mm -hmm. successfully is the wrong word, but perform both roles in full in, with full integrity, I think, actually. And mm -hmm. so if we want to- And without sacrificing women, themselves. And without sacrificing themselves. So if we want to give more mm -hmm. women from different walks of life, different economic situations, from different, um, different racial situations, like we need to, yeah, we need to acknowledge that actually it's very, very difficult. Mm -hmm to sort of mm -hmm. do it all and have that kind of influence in the public and cultural sphere if you're also raising children. Yes. And one of the concepts that I love that you introduced in your book is this idea of cultural parenting. You write that mm. people who are in positions of, you know, grassroots organizing or writers or who are in healing professions may not have children um, because they're doing this work of nurturing other people. And, you know, I found this very comforting as somebody who is entering into a healing prof profession mm. and is also a writer. I felt like, oh my gosh, like, you know, one of the other things you write is not being a mother is not the same thing as being child free. And it's not being a mother is not the same thing as not nurturing or being mothering to people. Yes. Yes. I really like the term cultural parent. Um, I can relate mm -hmm. to it. Um, and I say mm -hmm. that not from a place of having aspired to that necessarily, but just from the very real kind of mirror that I get back from people who engage with my work, who've said that my work has really guided mm -hmm. and supported them along the way. And that feels great to think that I'm guiding and supporting people. There's um, a woman named Kelly McDaniel who had a book out called Mother Hunger. You might have come across her work, mm -hmm. actually, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. she talks a lot about the void being mm -hmm. this kind of mother hunger that so many of us mm -hmm. experience, a subject for a whole other podcast, really. Yes. She talks about mothering specifically as having mm -hmm. sort of three... Um, three roles, I suppose, or there are three pillars. There's uh, nurturing, like actually physically mm. nurturing. 
there's protect protecting and mm. there's guiding and so while obviously it's interesting people will often sort of say oh but you can be a mother in other ways i don't know if i subscribe to that. i think mothering is a very specific role that speaks to the actual hands-on nurturing um and caregiving to a, an mm-hmm. infant a child um or an older an older child obviously but i do think that parenting if we if we sort of think about parenting and as more more sort of mentoring i suppose and very then there's sort of cultural parenting speaking very specifically to that guiding guiding principle mm-hmm. that comes under parenting um mm-hmm. then yeah i think that can absolutely be applied to all sorts of individuals who are engaged in all sorts of work in the world mm-hmm. i mean in into i like elizabeth gilbert's kind of there are there are three sorts of women and, and honestly i probably fall into the third camp of people who just mm-hmm. i'm really just like not interested in being involved or engaged in the lives mm-hmm. of children it's just not something mm-hmm. i have a capacity for and mm-hmm. making peace with that has actually been one of the the trickiest pieces for me because mm. inherent particularly as a woman who doesn't really enjoy spending time with children or want to spend time with children it's very hard for me to not feel that that makes me incredibly heartless and mm. ultimately a really terrible person <laughs> but again i'm mm. sort of looking at the cultural conditioning that suggests that you know Absolutely, that it's it's selfish to choose yourself instead of choosing to have a child. More so that it's hot, that it's heartless, or there's something mm. um, cruel. Mm. So many depictions of um, the one that came up as I said, cruel was like Cruella Deville. You know, there's so yes. many depictions of of women who don't like children, and of mm. course, there are individual children that I find adorable. But as a whole, mm-hmm. I'm not particularly competent. At mm-hmm. sort of being with children. And yeah, and we need to I'm make room for both. At, you know? Exactly. exactly. And I'm sort of, yeah. does that make me a, a, a terrible, mean person? Or I don't know, just, yeah, cruel is the word that comes up, which is so odd, right? So it's good to be yes, able to sort of vocalize it, it and just think about where does that even come from, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the ideas that you introduced, I think in your podcast was this idea of, I think it was called feeling rules from the sociologist mm. um, Rothschild, where mm-hmm. this idea that anytime there is a rule that we're supposed to feel a certain way, that that often comes from a sociological place or that that's something right. that was imparted on us from society and does not actually come to us naturally. Yeah. So there's, um, so Orna Donut talks about the feeling rules that are attached to motherhood. And I don't actually even think Mm. it's her term. I can't remember who she references, but it seemed very clear to me. There are certain feelings that are allowed in the realm of motherhood Mm. and certain Mm. feelings that are not allowed. Regretting having had your children, definitely not being allowed, for example. But then I spoke to an evolutionary biologist called Gillian Ragsdale. And she said, wherever we see these kinds of feeling rules in society, it's a clue that what we're being told to feel or what we're being told Mm. to do is not natural. She's like, we don't need to have Mm. feeling rules about drinking water or eating or (laughs) using the bathroom. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. there are certain things that just come naturally to us where Mm. they just happen. Anywhere Mm -hmm. there are these very strict feeling rules suggests that we are being 
again, not necessarily consciously, but we're being manipulated in some way to behave in a certain way that Mm. likely serves a certain societal structure or point of view. So when Mm. we think about the feeling rules that are attached to motherhood, what are those, who's benefiting from women feeling Mm. a certain way about becoming mothers? Who's who's benefiting from me feeling that not enjoying spending, not um, enjoying spending time with children means that I'm a terrible person? Mm. What, not necessarily Mm -hmm. who individually, but what system benefits Mm -hmm. from me feeling that way and possibly Mm. trying to make myself want to spend more time with children let's start asking the questions because there's so much unexamined material here you know yes i think it is so vitally important and that's sort of the point that you make in this book there's no one right answer but we need to be asking these questions and you talk about how this decision for more women to decide to become child-free might be this sort of canary in a coal mine situation Mm -hmm. and symbolic of current conditions being unconducive to family life and the realities of climate change and rapidly changing social ideas around a woman's role in society. So I was wondering if you could share just a little bit more about what you mean by this and how you see the implications of this it's really feels like a movement towards more women um, feeling empowered to make this decision for themselves. So that term, the canary in the coal mine, when, Mm -hmm. um, when people were working in coal mines, Mm -hmm. there would sometimes hit on, um, you know, poisonous minerals that would be released into the atmosphere, which could kill the miners and canaries would pick up, start cheeping. If they could smell it or sense this in the air, they would start cheeping, giving mm-hmm. people a warning sign that get out because mm-hmm. something deadly is coming, right? Mm-hmm. So canaries in the coal mine are the kind of like early warning signals. Mm-hmm. For some reason, it's making me emotional, but a canary in a coal mine is like, Whew, sorry, <laughs> a warning signal that something's not right. And the other piece of that quote, I say, in some ways, women without kids are canaries in the coal mine. Um, You know, our very existence is a signal that conditions on planet Earth are just not conducive to family life Mm. and child rearing, whether it's due to massive economic inequality, whether it's due to terrible damage that's been done to the climate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that simple either, right? I say as well, coming on, coming off that quote, in some ways, you know, our movement can be read as equal parts empowerment, women actually having the option to decide what we want to do with our lives, self-preservation, not taking on the role of child rearing when we know that we don't necessarily have the capacity to perform that role and birth strike which is ultimately, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to continue bringing more people into a planet and that is governed by systems that are ultimately dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I had no idea I was going to get emotional. No, and you've been, about that. <laughs> you've made me cry because, <laughs> and I think it's something that we're able to, it's become so normalized that we're able to talk about these things without emotion. The mm-hmm. fact that social structures are so, broken. I'm starting to. Sorry. I'm sorry. But, but it's really like when you start to sit to and 
when you start to sit with these things, that social Mm -hmm. structures are so deeply broken Mm -hmm. that our world is just rotting and that, you know, we're having to make these decisions because of these things. It is so deeply, it's so deeply distressing and it's so deeply sad and crying can be the only sane reaction. (laughs) Right. I feel myself (laughs) grieving so much while writing this manuscript. I don't, Mm -hmm. to be clear, I have no regrets about not having children. Nothing Mm -hmm. feels like it's missing from my life. I feel incredibly Mm -hmm. grateful to have been born at a time Mm -hmm. when I, as a a, a female-bodied person, get to live Mm -hmm. the life of my choosing. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) how devastating to have been born at a time when planet Earth is facing Mm -hmm. so many crises of humanity, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, obviously this ethical choice is also an impact, you know, it's also impacting women's decision Absolutely. whether to have children Absolutely. or not have children. And this is this very real concept that we have to be thinking about and, and to be considering. For people to, for people to question and project onto that, there's something wrong with you. Can you just do your duty is utterly, it's so, mm-hmm. it's beyond disrespectful. It's just insane, mm-hmm. actually. To not re- mm-hmm. to not realize and recognize that women are making these choices and weighing what feels sometimes like impossible odds when it comes mm-hmm. to there are so many women who fall into that childless by circumstance category who would love to have a child but who are looking at the world around them and just saying how how can I possibly do this and not be absolutely broken by it and not feel mm-hmm. just terrible guilt and terrible. Um, it's terrible responsibility for the kind of life that my child mm-hmm. is going to lead. This, this has got to be some of the most painful, heartbreaking decisions that people are making around this, this, this mm-hmm. subject, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I had a conversation with my mom recently where she said, you know, at some point, don't worry, I didn't want to have kids at 30, but then suddenly it hit me and all of a sudden I wanted to have kids. And I said to her, you know, the devastating thing about that is that I, I already have the biological impetus to have children. I feel my ovaries when I see a baby. Like I want, I want to have a child, but there are so many other things weighing on that decision that it's not just the biological imperative. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it is about empowering women to make these choices for themselves and to have these serious considerations. And then, you know, I might choose to have children, but to mm-hmm. to seriously look at these and to consider these things and to make this decision not as a given but as something that's a truly thought out choice so ruby we're coming to the end of our conversation and to our time even though i could talk to you forever but i just wanted to wrap this up by touching on this one final idea that was presented in your book that i loved that you present this alternative to this sort of sad lonely spinster without children and this alternative is this wise elder woman and you wrote you write about her being sovereign and that the idea of sovereignty is to give far fewer fucks and to fully embody her wise woman, um, which is the version of herself who trusts her lived experience above all else and who in doing so might inspire others to do the same, which I feel like is exactly what you're doing with your book. Yeah. I really step fully into this role of being women without kids unapologetically you know um mm-hmm. and again mm-hmm. i at, at the end of the book i sort of i'm talking about maybe reading this book has made you realize you've really wanted you really do want a child mm-hmm. you know and that's mm-hmm. f- fucking great 
if that's you, you know, and if it means maybe, okay, I might need to reprioritize some things in my life in order to make that happen, then let this book be a permission slip for you to do that. You know, Mm -hmm. in terms of the environment, I draw, I give the example of a friend who is actually one of my book clients who, um, she always really wanted to have children, but is deeply concerned about the environment and just the ethics of bringing a child into the world currently. And she ultimately squared her decision by, okay, she was working in tech, thinking about, I want to change careers to work in a, a, an industry that's addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to do everything that I can that's within my power to live an ethical life when it comes mm-hmm. to the environment. And she actually, her des- deep desire to be a parent really galvanized her mm-hmm. environmental activism. And I think that's such a great example of, yes, you know, if you want to be a parent, be a parent and then even more imp- of an impetus to really do right by the climate. But I mean, it really is on, it's on all of us at this point to, um, mm-hmm. yeah, to ensure going back to that quote I gave earlier that we're doing what we can to mm-hmm. leave behind a decent place to live for the future generations, mm-hmm. you know, in whatever way. And not to, and not to use the excuse of not having children right. to remove the ethical responsibility exactly. to do other things. I mean, Ruby, I think that this is a conversation that people are only going to be continuing to have. There are so many exciting things that developments even talking about the way that we conceptualize menopause. There was just a Mm. huge New York Times article about it. And I think we're at the cusp of really reimagining what women can choose to do with their lives. And I think that this is such an enormous piece of the puzzle. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and to speak with Morning Person. Um, I'm just, I hope that my readers are as touched by this as I was, because I just think they're really important questions that we need to be asking ourselves. Well, thanks for having me. I do, if anyone's inspired to read the book, I highly recommend reading it with a friend. If you're a woman without kids, read it with your mom friends, read it with your Mm. mother, read it with your partner. Mm. These are conversations Mm -hmm. that should be had in the open with all the people in our Mm -hmm. lives. This is just a conversation for women without kids, you know? Completely. Yes. I've been talking to honestly, almost everybody I know about. (laughs) So I can vouch for that. Yes. Um, Women Without Kids, um, it comes out in March of 2023. So I'm so excited for everybody to be able to pick this up. And thank you again, Ruby, for having this conversation. Thank you.